The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, our Father, oh Lord, just now as we pause uh, before we open your word to look into the Bible, we, we thank you for its message. We thank you that from beginning to end, it's all about what you did in your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's nothing, nothing that we have from you that does not come because of him and through him and for his glory. And uh, we pause right now to take inventory, oh God, to take inventory of our own hearts. They can become so cluttered. And so we come, Lord, just... Would you come now, Holy Spirit, and search our hearts and give us the grace, Lord, to to just have courage or to have faith or whatever it is that we need to be able to bring you this this heart that we have that um, can be so complicated sometimes, and we bring it to you, and we want it to burn with the clean, clean flame of devotion to one Lord, one obsession, one holy passion, ruling all our frame. And it is you, Jesus. So we come, Lord, in in confession. We come in contrition. We come in humility. And we acknowledge that we're not who we're, we're meant to be. But Lord, we know that that you have promised us that you are making out of us a beautiful workmanship and that as you do so, we reflect your wonderful glory. So individually we come and collectively we come and we pray, have your way more. In this morning, hear our prayer and let us hear from you. Uh, Spirit of God, we ask you to have liberty this day to speak. Father, we we have prayed this week for the police services of Winnipeg. We pray for them again this morning. And we ask you to accompany those men and women that serve this city. Lord, we pray that we would be part of what makes their job easier And that this society that we live in will know that there is the church of Jesus Christ among us. Lord, may our presence be felt. May our prayers be answered. And uh, we commit this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in uh, a sermon series uh, until Easter. We're going to be in this series. It's called... It's all about equipping the church. You can see on the banners at the front of the sanctuary that the key verse is from Ephesians 4, chapter 12, that we are all about preparing God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up and that we might all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And uh, so this morning, very directly, we're going to be talking about equipping. And the question that we are going to answer this morning is why? is the equipping of the church imperative. We have begun a few weeks ago by talking about humanity 
and, and that it's not as God intended, that we, we see that God's Word teaches us all of human life has been created in the image and likeness of God, and yet because of sin and evil, we have been tarnished, and the image of God that we carry within us is not reflecting His glory. We are, each one of us, saved and unsaved people on this earth, we are broken image bearers that are being repaired and restored so that we can reflect the God who made us more completely. We talked about the role of pastors in churches a few week, two weeks ago, and we talked about the fact that often pastors are not as God intended, that we get off track, we lose a sense of our job description, and that we are mandated with not only the care of the flock, but also that equipping part of the flock. What does that look like? And then last week, Pastor Doug talked about the fact that the church is not as God intended, that biblically, the models and metaphors that we have are, are about a bride, about a body, about uh, a people of God that are reflecting God to the society around them, functioning inwardly together in a way that looks like that harmonious unity, and that God is calling us to grow into maturity into Jesus Christ. For indeed, uh, there has never been a man as God intended man to be until Jesus walked this earth. So He is the one that we look to. This morning, and you'll, you'll notice in your sermon insert, there's four, four answers to the question, I believe, why equipping is so imperative in the church. The first answer is because God's image and God's glory matters to God. <clears throat> the second reason is because the world that God created matters to God. And thirdly, because the church that God saved matters to God. And then very, very personally, the last answer is because how you spend your life matters to God. So let's talk those four points through. Before we get to them, I'd like to ask or clarify again, what is this word equipping? Where does it come from? It comes from the verse 12 that is on the banner where Paul says that it's all about preparing God's people for works of service. And that word prepare is the word equip. It has a, a varied background. That word actually in Greek could be, was used of the restoration of a broken limb, a bone being restored. It was also used in Matthew 4 of the fishermen, the apostles who were mending their nets, so sewing them together, getting them ready to be taken back out fishing and be useful. Uh, it is a word that has a, a rich, versatile variety of meaning to fix, to mend, to repair, to equip, to get God's people ready so that they can be and do what God has called them to be and do. And of course, equip is a word that, that is related to equipment. So in a very, uh, very simplistic kind of way, uh, equipment is something all of us understand. Put up your hand if you have ever played on an organized hockey team. Put up your hand. Okay, well, we got a, um, a football team. Okay, soccer. Okay, well, more soccer players than hockey players. Okay, um, well, obviously, a sport like any of those has equipment. If, you have, if you're going to be equipped to play that sport, you are going to have to have equipment. And uh, playing hockey, I mean, I would suggest skates is probably the first one I'd buy uh, if you're going to try and play hockey. 
um, and a stick and a puck. And I would not go on the ice without shin pads, especially when you play with some of these young guys in this church. And I was, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, and so equipment. What about building and renovating and building furniture, renovating your home? Put up if you, your hand if you've renovated your home or built furniture, worked with wood. Put up your hand. Okay. Again, you need equipment if you're going to do that because you could probably renovate your home or do some of that furniture building without the equipment, but it'd probably be very shoddy work. Things like levels and planes and, and, and routers and, and all the things necessary for doing that. What about quilting? Put up your hand if you've ever made a quilt in your life. All you men, come on. <clears throat> Roy, way to go. All right. So obviously, I, I've learned, I've passed made a quilt, and, and here before us, Kathy has provided us with a quilt, and, and I know that you need various uh, equipment pieces for making a quilt. You need things like rotary cutters, cutting mats, sewing machines, scissors, and, and all the like to make a quilt. And uh, if you didn't have that equipment, you might be able to make a quilt, but it wouldn't turn out in very fine workmanship. And that's the segue to the next point I want to make about this, and we understand equipping, and that is a word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that's a great, great verse, and that word, workmanship, in Greek, the, the word is poema, where we get our word poem from. Now, I did a little study on that word, and it actually has, has again, a, a wider history than just poem writing. It has to do with any kind of, of product that somebody is making out of something. The idea of poema is art or craftsmanship that requires that you do something, you make something in order to make something else. That's the idea of poema. You make something in order to make something else. We are God's workmanship. We are made and created in Christ Jesus in order to make something else, in order to do something beyond what we are. And so I think, actually, a quilt serves as a good example. In fact, I did find one usage of this term in the Greek uh, that, that was used of fabric that is used taken from raw material, made so that it can make a dress, a pair of pants, whatever. That's similar to what um, a quilt is, isn't it? Because uh, Kathy, if she was here, could tell us each one of these little squares in this quilt had a former life. It was a bed sheet, a pillowcase, or something else. And that's what is being done when you quilt. You take older material, I suppose, and you, you, you stitch them together, and thereby you create something new for a new purpose. And that is very much the idea of what Ephesians 2.10 is talking about, that God in his workmanship uh, prepares in advance things that we are to walk in. And so as we live our lives, we can live our lives in such a way that we include the things that God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you might want to walk by some of them, and you will lose. You will lose out in the end if you do that. But the idea of including and incorporating in your life the things that God prepared in advance, just like 
these squares on a quilt have to be prepared in advance to be incorporated into the workmanship of, of what the quilter is making. So also God is prepared in advance, works for us to do, and as we live our lives, we incorporate what God prepared in advance for us to do. And as you do that, you reflect the image and the glory of God. And to the degree that you do not do that, you do not tune in to God's uniqueness upon you, His design for your life, the intent of your life, why He created you, why He gifted you a certain way, why your personality is the way it is, and so on, you will miss out on understanding God's design and His purposes and the good works for your life. Let's move on then to talk about the four answers to the question, why is the equipping of the church imperative? Number one, it's imperative because God's image and God's glory is very important to God. It matters to God. We, we read in the shorter Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. One author uh, sort of translates it this way. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Isaiah in chapter 42, verse uh, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, the image of God. The glory of God is at the heart of all biblical truth and all theology, and it, it is actually at the heart of everything of any eternal consequence that we, the church, is involved in. Can you, can you get your, your head around that? That the glory of God is at the root of everything that God asks us to be involved in. When Jesus was born upon this earth, the angels showed up in a multitude that no one could count, and they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. And later on, when we read in the scriptures that uh, Jesus began his earthly ministry. John the Apostle said, The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. At the end of his earthly life, Jesus praying before he was crucified in John 17, verse 1 says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may also glorify you. Later on, Paul writing in that wonderful Mennonite book called Colossians, if you're with me, <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says he, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he, Jesus, might have the, the supremacy. That's another word saying glory. He, he's the one that's to be exalted. Jesus is at the center of all redemptive history of all that God is intending to do in and through the church. All creation will one day declare with bended knee that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No, no value, no possession, no affection upon our hearts is more important than the glory 
of Jesus. And as we get in tune with the purpose for which God created us and the workmanship we are created to do good works, we glorify God. And that's what we're called to be and do. So we humans who bear the image of God have the capacity to glorify Him, to reflect His image. And so this first reason has a lot to do with worship, a life of worship. And that's why equipping is imperative. That's why we were created and it matters to God. Secondly, equipping is important because <clears throat> the world that God created matters to God. Isaiah, again, chapter 43 in verse 6, we read a very evangelistic text. In Isaiah 43, verse 6, here's what God says. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What an incredible evangelistic text, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. What a cosmic God and vision we have. What a global God with a cosmic vision of his kingdom. Just like we sang earlier in our service in that new song, no weapon formed against him will stand. No weapon formed against him will prosper. Satan and sin and every earthly power lines up against the almighty God. Every earthly power lines up against God's children and everyone who is going to become God's child. They line up and God looks down and he says, I am a jealous God. I will not share my glory with another. And so though the world around you that you see that God created, though you look around and you see people that, that either despise God or mock God or maybe just ignore God, I want you to know it hasn't changed God's heart for that world one little bit. God loves that person that ignores him. God loves that person that despises him, that mocks him, that co-worker, that student you sit beside. That, that, that is a person that was created in the image of God. And he loves them. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What's God's primary mission for sending Jesus? To condemn or to save? For God, verse 17, John 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn. The mission of Jesus from heaven down to earth is not, let's see how many people I can condemn to an eternity without me. The mission of Jesus from heaven down to earth is to see how many will be saved because of his redemption. Yes, he will be the judge for many who say, in the end, I will not, I do not want you. Do we have the same cosmic vision that God has? What are we working toward 
Answering that question will help us answer what we need to be equipped for. Answer it wrong, and equipping doesn't matter. Answer it right, and equipping becomes the passion of the church with a cosmic vision. What are we working toward? Tonight at our annual meeting, we'll be hearing reports from 2015, which are essentially describing what we have been working toward. And we have an opportunity in an annual meeting to, to re-examine that maybe our focus needs to be slightly different in the new year as we think about it. What are we working toward? God's vision for White Ridge Baptist Church does not end with a bigger building, though it includes that. God's vision is centered on souls, all the broken image bearers in this world that we know that God puts us in touch with so that we can be the bearers of the good news that there is a Christ to redeem and repair. We are His ambassadors. At the conference that we were at, there was a, a survey that was done in the North American church that was done to, to describe where the church sits demographically in society. Uh, they, they said, we, we've lost home field advantage. Go back 60, 50, or 60 years, and there was a time when Christianity, the church, had an advantage in society. It has moved from being an advantaged place to being disadvantaged, and we're probably on the brink of having open hostility against Christ, His followers, and the church. There's no reason biblically or theologically to believe that the next generation that is coming is going to be better than the last generation with all of its bloodshed, with all of its violence. There's nothing to suggest that it's going to get better before it gets worse. No, it's going to get worse, the Bible tells us. But Jesus Christ is still the most famous man on earth. Jesus Christ is still winning souls one by one. He needs an army, an ambassador, that is not going to be ashamed to say his name, to, to bear the consequences of living for his truth. Jesus said, if I am persecuted, will they not persecute you also? Peter says, do not be surprised that it's going to come for those that bear his name. And so what does equipping look like in a cosmic vision where we go out like sheep among wolves, perhaps you think? It means you have the mentality, you're mentally and emotionally and spiritually ready to be frowned on, to be rejected, to be scorned or mocked or ignored because of the name of Jesus. It's, it means going up out and, and acknowledging that God loves the world around us. We were taught to pray by our, our Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not just in the church, but on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pursue a cosmic vision. That's one of the reasons why equipping is imperative. Thirdly, the equipping is imperative in the church because the church that God saved matters to God. Centuries before Christ, there was a prophet of God that was sent to the earth. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He went through much sorrow in his life. But he prophesied of things that were coming. And in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, he prophesied that there was coming a time when God would write his law on the hearts of people that would follow him. And that he would be their God 
and they would be his people in such an intimate way that he would actually dwell within them. Jesus, who, who at the time of his ascension had maybe 120 followers and could know all of them by name, there was no way that his church was going to grow and that he was going to have an intimate relationship with each one. And so he said, I do not leave you as orphans, for I am coming back to you. I will give you my Holy Spirit, an indwelling company of God with each believer. That prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That was the day that the church, as we know it today, was born now, you who are parents know that, that children that are born to you are absolutely precious for, throughout their lifetime, regardless of whether they live obedient and wonderful lives and make you proud, or whether they live wayward and dishonorable lives. I've never met parents that have stopped loving their children. It might come out in a lot of pain. I've talked to parents who have been very hurt and grieved by their children. Now, I want you to know that God's love is nothing like a parent's love. In fact, there is nothing on this earth, nothing in all of our experience that could describe God's love. You might think you understand God's love. You don't have a clue about God's love. In Ephesians chapter 3, when one of the apostles' prayers was, is being given to the church, and he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, that we might know this love that surpasses knowledge. And he describes it with four dimensions when we live in a three-dimensional world. That we might know this love that surpasses knowledge. So many people with pen and ink have tried to describe the love of God. And there, there's, nothing, there's no earthly comparison. No earthly love that you could imagine. However passionate, however sincere, however faithful is like the love that God has for us. His church, the most precious people on earth to God, His children. You who are parents understand that. There was a hymn writer that wrote in 1917, a man by the name of Frederick Lehman. He finished a, a, a poem and made it into a hymn. And the third verse of this poem was found in an insane asylum. Etched on the wall after the person that had lived in that, in that room had been taken out to his grave. They went in to clean up the room for the next person that would live in that room, in that insane asylum. And they found etched on the wall something that they, they had learned that tried to describe the love of God. You'll recognize the words and try to imagine the words as I say them to you. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You can't describe the love of God. Do you realize how precious you are, church, to the Lord Jesus that saved us? 
and the Father that sent him. John Piper wrote in a sermon, described the story of a little boy that, that was four years old. He's at the deep end of the pool, standing on the, the concrete, and he's four years old. He can't swim, his, and, and his daddy is at the other end of the pool. Imagine that you're this boy. Suddenly, a big, mean dog crawls under the fence and shows his teeth and growls at you, and he starts coming toward you to bite you, and you crawl up on the only thing that's nearby, the diving board, and you crawl to the end of the diving board to get away from him. The dog puts his front paws on the diving board, and just then your daddy sees you. He sees what's happening. He cries out, Johnny, jump in the water. I'll get you. Now, you've never jumped in the water. You're four years old. You do not swim. The water is over your head. But you trust your daddy, and you know that your daddy loves you. And so you jump, and almost as soon as you hit the water, you feel his hands and his arms underneath you, taking you to the side of the pool while someone else scares the dog off. You see, we give glory to God. We live the way we were created to live when we trust in the God who made us and saved us and continues to shape us. We we give Him glory when we trust in His love, especially when all human possibilities are exhausted in our lives and we turn to Him. We give Him glory. We live the way that God called His church to live. So why is equipping in the church imperative? Number one, because God's image and glory matter to God, because the world God created matters to God, because the church God saved matters to God. And finally, as we conclude, the fourth is that because how you individually, how you spend your life matters to God. Dr. Paul Brandt and Philip Yancey, a medical doctor and a theologian, teamed up to write several books Books like In His Image or Fearfully and Wonderfully Made or The Gift of Pain, I would commend any of them to you. Here's what they write in one book. Jesus departed, leaving nobody on this earth to exhibit the Spirit of God to an unbelieving world except this faltering, bumbling community of followers who had largely forsaken Him at His death. We are what Jesus left on earth. The Spirit has come, dwelt within us, and the world knows an invisible God by our enfleshment of Him. We form God's presence in the world through the indwelling of God's Spirit. It's a heavy burden collectively, but in all our diversity, we come together as the community of saints to restore the image of God in this world. To me, the key words there that I'd like to identify are in all our diversity. Each one of us being quilted in to the workmanship of God. Each one of us having a place in the quilt of God. Each one of us filling a role because each one of us being uniquely created. It's, it's like scientists with DNA are barely scraping the surface of the incredible image of God that he has created each individual with. And here we are created in the image of God filling a role in society and in, in the church and in our world where he planted us that nobody else can fill. Nobody like you. Now, lest we only think that God's job is to help you to come to your fullest uh, 
uh, realization and to fulfill you, as if that could be sort of self-serving, it is true God wants you to be the best you that he created you to be. But there's a flip side to that as well, and that is that you and I will one day stand before God with the, the, the you and I that we were given, and we will have to give an account of what we did with the you and I that we were given. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, We make it our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive what is due us for things done well in the body, whether good or bad. You see, how you spend your life matters to God. And one day we'll give an account. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Paul says that it is required of those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful. This idea of a trust is the idea of stewardship. And stewardship is, is the idea that we don't own anything. We're just taking care of something for someone else. And that extends even to your life. You see, we live borrowed lives, we are on borrowed time, we have borrowed resources and gifts and abilities, and one day God will call them all in, and we will be asked to return the life He gave us, the time He gave us, the gifts and abilities, all that we have been given, we will give an account as to what we did with that. Did we use it for His glory or for ours? Did we use it to serve others or serve ourselves? Did we use it to help others know the one who can rescue them? You remember the parable in Matthew 25 of the talents? Jesus tells the story of a man who was going on a journey, and he had three servants. He left one with five talents, which was a a kind of a coin that was worth about $1,000. And he left two with one servant, and he left one with another servant. And then he came back after many years from his journey, and the one with five He invested, got five more. The one with two invested, got two more. The one with one was afraid. He went and buried it in a secret place. And when his master returned, he dug it up and he gave him back the one that he'd given. You know, when I stand before God one day, I want to have something in my hands to offer him. With, with what He gave me, with what He blessed me with, I want to have something in my hands to offer Him. He's, it says, Jesus said, for him who has been given much, much will be required. And for him who has been given little, little will be required. What have you been given? Let's ask the worship team to come. And um, as we think about this last song, which is a prayer to God, to the sovereign Lord, let's, let's ask God to help us to know how to live now, that when he comes, we will have joy in what we're going to offer him as a sacrifice of praise. Amen.